Uh, welcome to this episode of the Bet and Bits podcast. I have a very special guest, Sam Bauman, who is, a, who is the Director of Competition Policy at the Law and Economics Center in the UK. Uh, hi, Sam. N- nice to have you here. Nice to have me, or nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, you started, um, you along with other people, started a magazine called Works in Progress l- last year about our progress studies. What's the general philosophy of the magazine? What sort of content are you trying to bring out? Um, I think our basic philosophy is that there are lots of unrealized gains in the world. Um, there are lots of ways we could make people's lives a lot better um, just by solving problems. And I would contrast that with a different view of the world, which is to say that most challenge are mainly distributional, um, that most challenges about making people's lives better are about taking stuff from some people and giving it to other people. We think that actually we can increase the total size of the pie um, via clever problem solving. And uh, we take as our mascot, a guy called Viktor Zhdanov, who is a, um, who was a Soviet minister of health in the 1950s. And um, you might find it strange to um, idolize a Soviet minister, but he was one of the instrumental men behind the eradication of smallpox. And, um, you know, while that was partly a technical challenge, it was also a kind of question of political will um, and of the World Health Organization and um, the countries involved deciding that it was actually feasible to eliminate a disease, um, which which we had almost never done before. So um, we consider that to be the sort of archetypal example of the sort of huge gain to human welfare that we could bring if um, we could figure out what the low-hanging fruit um, are or were. Your first, um, your cover issue of the magazine was the housing theory of, of, of everything. And to most people, it's not quite intuitive why uh, housing, why the housing shortage is, is, su- is such a big problem for every part of the economy. Uh, What's the thesis behind that? Well, that's right. Um, When we talk about housing shortages, for obvious reasons, we usually focus on the most immediate effect of there being too little housing. And this is true in cities all around the world, Um, not just London, but not just New York, not just uh, San Francisco, but um, Zurich, um, uh, Vancouver, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Auckland, Sydney, All of these are cities that have been prosperous to a great extent, but are very, very expensive to live in. And and I think they're mainly expensive to live in because there's a huge demand to live there, but the supply of housing hasn't risen to meet that demand. Um, So it's understandable that we would focus on the price of living in those places because, you know, most of us spend somewhere between a quarter and a third of our income on housing every month. Um, it's a really, really big part of our expenditures. Um, so that's that's very natural. What we try to point out and what we, tr- we try to argue, though, is that that is only the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, housing determines pretty much everything else about our lives or, or significantly influences pretty much everything else about our lives. Um, where you live determines what kind of jobs you can do. Where you live determines the people you know. Um, the, the people who become your close friends. It determines how close you can be with your family. Um, it determines things like how you, how you move around. Um, so, so that can affect your health. Um, and it also can affect uh, CO2 emissions and the environment if you have to drive everywhere. And 
the fundamental kind of point, I think, and the, the way that I think is best way of understanding why housing matters so much is to remember that human beings are the ultimate resource. You know, human beings are by far the most important um, productive resource on the planet, much more so than oil or or silicon or, or lithium or any any other any other um, valuable uh, resource that we might have. And where housing is determines where that extremely valuable resource can be. And so just as too little housing in a certain place can increase the price of housing, too few people in a certain place can um, prevent the sorts of combinations of people that create wealth from arising. And so, you know, even when it comes to things like innovation, um, I think too little housing in, in certain places holds back how much innovation takes place because innovation is often very random and often very spontaneous um, and difficult to uh, predict in advance. And what, what we see is that the most innovative places through history, places like Amsterdam in the 17th and 18th centuries, places like London in the 19th century, uh, New York in the 20th century, are kind of melting pots that mix lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds, often people from poorer backgrounds who, you know, um, at the beginning of their lives are starting off with very little, but later on in their lives sort of turn out to have this incredible talent and this incredible ability to, to innovate and, and kind of create new things. And insufficient housing often stops people like that from going into those places and often holds back the size of those melting pots. So even when it comes to innovation, the thing that determines sort of long run growth, it seems as if too little housing holds back um, the sorts of combinations of people that drive that. So, you know, when I think about housing, really, I think of it as the key to a lot of the problems that we have in the developed world, um, many of which seem very unrelated, things like climate change, things like slow growth, things like um, political problems where people see uh, political problems as a, as a pure kind of zero sum game where, you know, for me to benefit, you have to lose. And I think at the root of almost all of those things, um, maybe, maybe not always the only factor or maybe not always the, the largest factor, but a significant factor in almost all of those things, I think, is too little housing being built. And that that should, on the one hand, make us very sad because, you know, it's, it's this self-inflicted wound. You know, there really isn't very much um, physically stopping us from building new housing. It's a political problem. But on the other hand, it should make us optimistic because if we can solve that one problem, we should expect to see huge gains, not just in you know, how much money we're spending each month on our housing and our rent, but also in economic growth, um, in people's wages, in um, levels of equality in, in terms of ownership and things like that in the economy, and possibly even in terms of our health and our impact on the climate. And so I think, um, you know, it's it's actually quite an optimistic story because it says if we can fix this, then a lot of other problems that we're facing might become a lot easier to, to face. Um, that was a very detailed ex explanation. Thank you for that. I think the best example is I, I had Mike Bird on the podcast, now of The uh, Economist, and he said that one of the main reasons why Hong Kong doesn't have a large startup sector is because it's too costly to rent the office space in Hong Kong. And so, you know, if you're a small company, the uh, it's it, it, it just makes more sense to move across the border to um, Shenzhen or Shanghai, where it's cheaper. But on that topic, uh, this is this, this is uh, in the developed world where we normally see generally good policy compared to the 
developing world, we see uh, better rule of law and relatively lesser rent seeking. But why is this? But why is this such a big anomaly? Who is the uh, at least the metaphorical culprit behind this? Well, I think that um, there are two potential culprits and I will um, talk about the first one and then sort of say why I don't think we should really blame them um, and, then, and then explain who I think the second culprits really are. So the, so the people who usually get the blame are people called NIMBYs and NIMBY is a sort of acronym that stands for not in my backyard. And these are people who already own a house or, you know, in some cases, they have a sort of claim to a house. So, you know, in San Francisco, a lot of people who live in certain areas don't actually own the houses they live in, but they have kind of very, very long-term rent-controlled leases over the houses that they live in. So they kind of de facto have a kind of sense of ownership. But um, NIMBYs and, and, and people, and kind of almost anybody can be a NIMBY, because really a NIMBY is somebody who says, you know, I like my area the way it is, and I don't want it to change. And especially if you're young, that can be incredibly frustrating. I am, I don't own a house, I, I rent, I move around a lot, um, and I am much more attached to you know, a, a wider circle of friends and the wider city that I live in, which is London, than I am to you know, the specific street that I live in. But as you get older, you begin to put down roots, um, particularly when you have children, it becomes much more costly to move around, and um, you often care much more deeply about the nature of the area around you than um, than I do. For example, I'm, I'm 33 years old, so I'm sure I'm going to face this kind of uh, mindset change at some point in the future. And so these people um, both, I think, have quite a strong interest in keeping their areas the same and also um, have a lot of political voice. They, are, they often tend to be slightly wealthier. They often, because they have so much um, stake and they, because they have so much wrapped up in kind of what their area is like, um, they become very engaged in the political process in the way that kind of younger people and poorer people who also rent um, often don't have the time or the, or the interest to do that or the incentive to do that. And so what we see is that in one shape or form, existing residents often fight really, really, really hard against new developments near them. And when you get that everywhere, when you, when you get existing residents across the entire city or across the entire country, all fighting new housing near them, you can have a kind of paradox where everybody kind of agrees that in principle, it will be good for us to build new housing, but just don't build it near me. Um, I don't want the costs that come with new housing to land on me. And that can be things like um, more pressure on local services like schools or, or health services, uh, it can be things like more congestion on the roads. Um, it can be things as straightforward as the disruption and noise that comes with new construction. You know, if I, I'm used to it because I live in the city, but there is often, you know, a drill going on in the background. And, you know, to me as a sort of housing, pro-housing fundamentalist, I love the sound of construction. You know, I, I feel like that's the sound of things getting better. But if you don't share that kind of view, I can understand why you'd object. And I think for a very long time, people like me who support new housing have seen these people as the enemy and seen these people as people that we need to, we basically need to defeat in, in political battle. Um, and where I think that that's mistaken and where I think that we should in fact realize that these people are not really the villains is in understanding that the system makes it a huge loss for them. Um, the system that we have in most Western countries makes it such that um, 
you only stand to lose from new developments near you. And I think that's a, I think that's a big mistake. Um, I think that if we, if we think about um, most times when um, parties stand to lose from a particular arrangement, we often, and, we, and, and usually when things go well, it's when there can be some kind of deal made between the people who stand to benefit and the people who stand to lose so that they can meet each other in the middle. Most contracts between businesses and most contracts between people involve this kind of compromise. So for example, um, if I only had to work for my employer, that would be terrible. That would be one of the worst things imaginable. But my employer says, all right, um, in fact, we're going to try to bribe you to work for us. We're going to give you money. And then that's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. And, I'm, and most people are generally pleased with, with the, the inconvenience they have to put up with by working that in exchange for the money they get um, from their employer, their wages. Um, and, and this really, I think, should be the case in almost every deal we have. Every, almost every time when um, there is an inconvenience or a burden put onto somebody, we tend to resolve that problem by coming to some sort of agreement where you say, okay, well, you can opt out of this. You can, you can reject this um, inconvenience, but we hope that you won't because we're going to give you a bribe. We're going to give you money or we're going to give you some kind of um, shape over um, what's going on. And when it comes to housing, uh, this doesn't happen. This is very, very, very rare when it comes to new housing being built in an area. And I think that um, really it's the system of the, what we call in the UK planning, but in what they call in America zoning, that, um, that is to blame for this because it makes these deals very, very difficult to strike. Where I see an opportunity and where I see a, um, a, big, a big potential gain and a way of solving this problem is in changing the system so that it's more like a system of deals. It's more like a system of exchange rather than a system of all win or all lose. Um, you know, if you are a local resident and you stop a, a new development, it's all win for you and all lose for whoever would live there. If you are a local resident and you, you lose the fight and a new development is built on you, you get nothing from that. And the people who get to live there are, are all the winners and the people who built it are all winners. So I propose and I suggest that we move towards a more um, bargaining-like approach to new housing. Now, I think there are potential different mechanisms for this. Um, one way of doing it would be doing it through existing political mechanisms and saying that, you know, uh, local municipal authorities can, can um, maybe auction off the right to build in new places. I'm, I'm not completely convinced that would actually work because I think that uh, most people feel very detached and far removed from their municipal authority. And, you know, I don't personally care that much if my local council um, gets, you know, a hundred million pounds tomorrow, it might, it might make my life better in some indirect way, but it's, it doesn't really feel that way. Instead, what I and, and um, others who, who I've written with and, and worked with are proposing is to create a much, much more local form of democracy and decision-making when it comes to new housing on the street level, where people who are on an individual street in a residential area can decide whether they want to allow building up to a certain density and building along a certain design code. And the reason that they might do that and the way that this approximates a bargaining system is because if you do that in a context where everywhere else isn't doing that, the value of your property will rise significantly. So you basically, you get to capture a lot of the gains that come from being able to build more as the decision maker, rather than whoever it is later on that builds for development. Um, so it's not a perfect approximation of a bargaining system, but I think it's possibly the best one that we can get. And my hope is that if we can move towards that, 
those people who were NIMBYs because they basically only stood to lose from new developments can instead become pro-development or, or in some cases at least become pro-development because even though many of the costs that they would bear from a new development would still exist, they would also gain many of the benefits. And, and that to me is the, the sort of bargaining-like system that allows us to solve otherwise intractable problems. Uh, a few things to me aren't very clear. Uh, first of all, for a little context to listeners, I think there was a bill recently tabled in the UK Parliament about uh, street votes. So if if so, later when this podcast is released and it uh, and if and when it passes, I I hope you listen to this. And um, but the first thing that's not clear to me is um, why would street owners have an incentive? Why would uh, have making the decision at the street level uh, be any better than making it at, at, at an area level? In my street, if I say the house next to me gets uh, built, I directly get the cause of all the drilling sounds and the, and the dust and the, and, the, and the smoke. And it introduces new people. As you said, people aren't, don't always like change, especially if they're older. And the second part is there are much easier ways of doing this. One solution I've heard is uh, you basically give existing uh, residents a certain stake in the overall areas, tax the, uh, the, uh, revenues from property, or just general like uh, sell them a share of the um, of the of the other house being built at a at a subsidized cost. So they have an incentive to uh, see the to see the areas property values increase. So uh, what's the answer? To these two objections? So the first question is, um, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm mis, mis, mistaking you, um, on, a, on a particular street, why would the people in, you know, House 10 vote for something if the people in House 11 are the ones who are going to take advantage of it by building, by building more densely? Um, so I think the way to understand it is, Imagine we had individual house votes, right? Imagine we didn't do it on the street level, but we said each house could decide what its density rules are. Then I think you would have completely effectively unrestrained. You basically wouldn't be a planning system because you would just be saying the property owner gets to decide. In that case, the incentive and the decision-making would be so closely aligned that you would, you would get, get pure benefit. You get pure um, kind of the market would build and build and build and build until the house, the price of housing was equal to the cost of building new housing, which is, which is a lot lower than the price of housing in lots of places. <clears throat> on the other hand, if we made that decision as we currently do on something like a kind of county level or on something like a kind of local authority level, you would get lots of, you would get much less building because the decision makers are um, the people as a whole, the, the people across the entire county um, and the beneficiaries are a very small number of people. The, the, the people in a particular, uh, basically the people who own a property that gets um, permission to build. So we, can, so we can see two ends of a spectrum. One end where the decision-making is very, very far removed from the benefit, and one area where the decision-making is very, very closely um, tied to the people who benefit. I think doing, it on, doing the decision-making on a street level is is very very close to doing it on an individual property level, but is is better balanced um, in terms of the externalities that come from uh, the construction of new housing. So what I mean is, the problem with doing housing construction and the decision to make housing 
built on a, on a property by property basis, where basically we don't have any rules, is that there are in fact negative externalities to new housing. That new housing does in fact make the, the lives of people around it worse in some ways. I think it makes people's lives better in other ways. And so I, you know, I'm not trying to say that it's just a loss, but it definitely, and most people regard it as being a negative thing for them. But most of the costs that we're talking about, with one exception, are felt by the immediate neighbors of that new development, you know, by people who can literally see the development. Um, most of the costs have to do with kind of light, they have to do with uh, the appearance of the street, the character of the neighborhood, um, things like that. The, and um, they're not entirely felt by the street, but they're mostly. The one exception is cars and congestion and, um, and and things like that. And so I think you do need to have some kind of tax of the new development to um, allow for either allow for more roads or some kind of restriction on the ability of the new development to provide parking spaces for the residents one way or another. But the reason that you would vote, even if you didn't intend to personally build, the reason that you would vote is that in the future, if you sell your house, it will become much more valuable because even if you don't intend to vote, sorry, to, to build on, on your property, number 10 does, but number 11 doesn't, and I'm living in number 11, then when I sell number 11 at some point, which I will, maybe maybe not in my lifetime, but when I die and then my, my children will get the benefit of it, somebody will want to come along and build more densely if it's in, if it's in a kind of an urban area. And so the value of my property will rise from in London, it, it might go from something like a million pounds to two million pounds, or maybe 2.5 million pounds. And so I will get, when I decide to move, a huge increase in wealth just from the way I have voted in this, in this local little referendum. And most people, may, many people may decide that that money isn't worth the costs and the, the negative externalities they experience from their neighbors all building up, them not building up. And in that case, they, I think they should vote against new, de new developments. You know, I think it would be an efficient outcome for, from a welfare point of view for them to vote against new developments if they object to them that much. But I think a lot of people would say, you know what, for a million pounds or for 1.5 million pounds or even half a million pounds, those costs I'm willing to bear because the money compensates me for those problems. So that's why I think that um, even though we shouldn't expect every street to vote for more density and it would be surprising if every street did vote for more density. I think many streets will be filled with people who say, yes, this is costly. And yes, more density will disrupt my life in some ways. But also the money that I get from being able to build more density on my property and the kind of land value uplift that I get um, is, is worth it. And that compensates me. The second question relates to kind of other mechanisms. And so I took it as a given that the benefit would accrue mostly to the local level. Um, but, but your question relates to, you know, why don't we share the benefit more broadly? Why don't we have um, local councils either impose a tax on new developments or um, impose some kind of, uh, you know, they could, they could sell the right to develop, to develop or they could buy land and then give themselves the right to develop and then sell the land. Um, and I think there are kind of three points. One is... I think we should try those things. And I think it's absolutely worth, you know, I, I just certainly am not in favor of putting all our eggs into one basket because I could be wrong. We, you know, the street votes policy could just be mistaken in some way. And it would be very silly if we had just said, well, all other policies are bad. Um, and, and, you know, then we discover that this doesn't work for some reason. So I'm very much in favor of that kind of experimentation and that kind of pluralistic approach to policy. Second is 
One reason that I am a bit skeptical about that kind of approach, um, although I, I favor trying it, is that people often don't feel a benefit from um, wider um, benefits that accrue to their local local council. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. You know, I I don't um, particularly care, and I don't really feel very much benefit if you know the national UK government finds an extra hundred billion pounds. I mean, it's probably slightly better for me, but it doesn't make my life better in any kind of obvious direct way. Um, even though it's a lot of money, and you know, on aggregate, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will be used in somewhat decent ways. Um, but if I if I kind of feel um, quite an acute cost um, at the local level, and the benefit is very dispersed and shared among um, shared among kind of all the people who live in a neighbourhood, then um, I still have a really strong incentive to oppose that kind of thing. And that that brings me to the third point, which is. A lot of these problems are problems of dispersed gains and concentrated benefits, sorry, and, and concentrated costs already. Um, you know, a lot of the time when we talk about political economy problems, we're looking at situations where a very small number of people have an enormous cost imposed on them, and they are much more active and vocal and much more persuasive than the kind of wider benefits, uh, the wider kind of number of people who get a very small gain. But because the gain is so small, they don't have any incentive to really lobby for it or to really um, act through in the political sphere to make it happen. So, you know, there are, <clears throat> you can have an equal total amount of gain that go on both sides of the ledger sheet. But if the cost, or if the, or if one if one side is much more concentrated than the other, then you may find that um, you get a very active kind of interest group that uh, is very effective at stopping things and and you know makes them vote on and, and votes on that on, on that basis or campaigns on that basis which affects other people's votes and that can end up being more powerful than a, an equally large in total um, benefit or cost that's effect that accrues to um, kind of everybody in a very small way. And that's one reason that rent seeking in general exists, that uh, you know, a small number of businesses or people or um, whatever get a big benefit from rent seeking that all of us face the costs of, but because all of us are facing you know, a fairly small cost, we don't really have the incentive to learn about it. We don't have the incentive to think very hard about it and fight it very hard. And so you can end up with this mismatch. Um, and, I, and I fear that um, in this context, when we when you do the decision making on a kind of local level, or sorry, on a on a sort of a municipal level rather than on a street based level, I fear that what you get is still the people who lose are this very very active and vocal minority versus the people who benefit, who are kind of like eh, you know I've got a hundred other things to think about. I don't really care. I'm not really going to um, learn about this. Yeah, I think I think that answered both my questions. Uh... Very well. Um, on a different note, what did writing and editing works in progress tell you about the state of online publishing? What sort of content sells, and uh, how do people who all, who both want to you know have high readership but also want to write about niche topics? How do they balance those? Because I feel your magazine is an example of that. Oh well, thanks. Um, that's very kind. I I think the the biggest thing that um, the most important thing that we ask read writers to do is to provide useful information to readers. Um, you know, it, the, the worst thing, the worst thing in the world is to read an essay 
that is just argument and assertion and is just somebody telling you what they think about the world. It's much more useful to read something where even if you don't end up agreeing with the author, you have learned things and you now understand something better um, and, there are, and there are useful examples that help you conceptualize that point better. Um, and so we often um, give writers sort of a steer or a bit of advice to you know, really focus on specifics, use a lot of examples. And um, if you have special knowledge of a subject, then try to bring that to the fore and try to make it so that the reader has um, benefited in some way after they've, they've written. Um, I think we also benefit from having a, you know, I, I don't, I think the word ideology might be a bit too strong, but you used the word philosophy earlier. We have a kind of philosophy that is, I think, shared by lots of people, but right now is not that widely, um, is not really that explicit. And it's this sort of problem solving, um, improving mindset where, you know, we, we look at the world, we see problems and we think, okay, how do we fix that problem? And we don't see it as being a question of revolution. We, we, we don't even see it as a question of defeating interest groups, you know, like in housing. We see it as how do we redesign the incentives that everybody is involved in, in such a way that we can make this problem that is currently a kind of win-lose into a win-win. And I think that's a pretty powerful way of looking at problems to say, you know, there are loads of potential gains. And this is true of loads of issues. You know, this isn't just true of um, housing. This is true of, for example, um, what's called pronatalism, which is um, the movement to make it easier for women who want to have children to have children. Um, you know, birth rates have fallen very, very significantly in most of the developed world. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that we've made it much more costly for women who want to have children to do so in terms of their careers, in terms of the housing that they live in, of course, um, in terms of their social lives and, and things like that. And what you see is across most of the developed world, the number of children that people have is fewer than the number of children they say they would like to have. And that's a sign that there's something very wrong. And so rather than taking a kind of conservative approach where you uh, berate people for not having children or where you kind of make it more costly socially for them to not have children or even professionally, you know, um, in, in Ireland, where I'm from, up until the 1970s, it was illegal for women to take certain jobs after they'd had children um, because it was considered to be a distraction from, you know, women's supposed main purpose in life, which is really obviously appalling. And, and you know, that's, that's within living memory in Ireland. Um, that's the kind of approach that is really important to eschew and to, to put aside. Instead, we need to think about what are the mechanisms at play here that um, make it costly for women to have children, to do with, let's say, childcare, to do with professional development and career development. And are there ways of us sharing the benefits, using the kind of huge social benefits that come from more children being born um, and, and using them to either compensate women for the costs that they face now, or to in some way eliminate or reduce the costs that they face in having to have children. Um, and I don't have really clear answers in my mind about how to do that. It's an ongoing question and an ongoing um, kind of interest of mine and of ours. But if we can do it, I think we get a kind of double win of giving individual people, especially women, more control over their lives and more ability to have children when they want to and have as many children as they want to have. And also, socially for everybody else, we get the benefits of, of a higher birth rate, we get the benefits of more people being born and, and all the great things that come from that. Um, and so I think with Works in Progress, we approach almost every question in that way. Um, how do we 
change the rules of the game so that what's currently a good behavior that is being disincentivized is now incentivized. Um, and there are loads more questions that we haven't approached yet that I hope we will approach in the future. Um, you know, one that I find really interesting is infrastructure costs and, you know, what are the things that make it so costly to build, you know, a mile of subway in New York City compared to in Madrid? Um, and if we could solve those problems, and, and I suspect a lot of the problems are to do with existing groups that lose out from um, new construction or existing groups that are able to rent seek from new construction. And if we can figure out a way of not defeating those people, but of basically buying them off, then I think we could end up with a much, much healthier and a much, much cheaper ability to build new public transport, which would, of course, have huge benefits for everyone. Um, but the list of problems that we could think about like that is potentially endless. And what excites me about Works in Progress is bringing this sort of philosophy to new questions and hopefully um, seeding ideas in other people's minds about um, how to solve them and how to bring those ideas into reality. What tips do you have for new writers? Or at least somebody who feels that their writing is, is good, but not very good. How, how do they get to a standard where it's, you know, where it can impact a large number of people? Um, so in terms of actual writing style, uh, I've always thought of myself as a fairly um, workmanlike writer, which is to say, I don't think that I have, I don't think I'm a great writer, but I think I'm an adequate writer. And that's kind of, I'm, I'm pretty happy with being an adequate writer. So I think um, the way I've got there is by writing a lot, uh, writing quite short form pieces, um, but I think having a discipline of, you know, not going over 600 words or not going over 800 words forces you to be concise and forces you to uh, be to the point. Um, and ultimately to not be kind of flowery in your language and not be, um, not be, you know, you're not a poet. You're not trying to be a poet. You're trying to convey an idea and you're trying to do it in the simplest, clearest way possible. And so I think just bringing, thinking about it from the reader's point of view, I think the reader doesn't care if you write in a beautiful way. Um, chances are, if you're trying to write in a beautiful way, you are not writing in a beautiful way. Um, you know, you, it, it's, it's a bit like kind of driving, uh, driving a car or driving an airplane or something like that. Um, you need to get the basics first. And I think almost like 99% of people will only ever, I include myself in this, will only ever be able to do the basics. But being able to do the basics really well is great. And being able to do the basics really well is, is pretty much almost all the job. Um, where I see especially young writers falling down is in they read the greatest writers. You know, they read the sort of um, amazing prose writers who, whose writing really is a bit like poetry when you read it and want to be like that. And, they, and they, they forget that these people have all gone through a stage where they've been really simple and really clear and really concise in their writing. And then after that, they've been able to be these sort of poetic type writers. So that's kind of tip one is to write in a simple way. Tip two is try to write as often as you can and try to be as, as concise as possible in what you write and give yourself um, explicit limits on word count and things like that. And I think point three is it's useful, and this goes back to what I was saying about making your piece um, useful to the reader by giving new information. It can be useful to focus on a particular topic or a particular couple of topics and to try to become um, something like an expert on one or two topics so that if I come to read your piece, I'm not just reading about, um, you know, your view on uh, the same subjects that everybody else is writing on. You know, right now, let's say a lot of people are writing about COVID. Um, I'm sure the world doesn't need one more COVID writer, but 
there may be other things that um, people haven't focused on. And there may be other elements, maybe related to COVID or maybe completely unrelated, more likely, um, that are really underexplored. And being the person who is the kind of number one expert or the number top 10 expert in the world on some relatively underexplored subject makes you really valuable to everybody else. Because if you can convey your insights and your knowledge in a concise way, you become you become this useful. Like you're, you're like a human Wikipedia for everybody else. And that's really, really, really useful. Um, so I would say, be clear in your writing. Don't try to be poetic. Just try to be uh, as simple and clear as possible. And by the way, you can do that by cutting your writing a lot. Um, cutting is the most painful part of any piece. Um, you, there's, a, there's a great expression, write drunk and edit sober. And, um, you know, that, that means like write as much as you want, write in a, in a flowery way if you want. And then after that, cut it down and, and try to boil it down to a very, very simple and clear uh, way. Number two, try to write often. Um, and number two, kind of try to write within sort of confined um, word counts. And number three, try to find some sort of area where you can learn enough to um, be a sort of useful synthesizer of information for everybody else. And I think if, if one can do that, then um, almost anybody can become a kind of valuable resource as a writer to others um, and, and avoid the sort of problem spreading yourself too thin that many, many writers I think often have. Uh, where should new writers get distribution? It's not entirely clear for somebody who's just started writing, or, or even young think tanks that come up. How do they get the message across? I think that's the, the biggest question, and I actually don't have a good answer for you. You know, one of the reasons we started Works in Progress was that we didn't feel that there were any other websites like the one that we wanted to create. And there, and you know, I, I when you look at a lot of the articles on Works in Progress, it's very unclear to me where else they would be able to go. Um, you know, one reason is that a lot of existing um, essay type websites have quite explicit political ideologies, and you know. I have my own political opinions and I have kind of well-documented views about, um, you know, things like, um, you know, lots of elements of government policy, but we, we try not to bring that into works in progress. And I think we, I think we, we work quite hard not to bring that kind of level of ideology into works in progress. Um, but if you are trying to avoid that and you are looking for somewhere to publish, that can be quite difficult. Um, my personal view is probably that at this point I would, consider something like a straightforward blog and use Twitter to um, and use Twitter to 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 do that. Uh, it, you may find that very few people are reading, but um, if you write something that does get picked up on Twitter, and, and I think the best way of that happening would be to write something that just nobody else knows about. And so when this issue becomes interesting to people, people say, well, um, you know, Mary, she's the she's the um, the world number one expert on this question and she's written all about this here then you'll start to get the readership that you that you need. But, you know, I'm interested in Substack, but my suspicion is that Substack is going to end up as a kind of superstar type model where there are like maybe a thousand people in the world who are uh, making a lot of money from Substack. And then everybody else kind of uses Substack as just a sort of hobby type tool where, you know, once every couple of months they send something out. Um, it's but But I think it's a really important question. You know, one one <clears throat> one solution, and I, you know, this isn't for me to do, but one thing that people could think about doing would be to um, set up a website that is a kind of group website that is explicitly aimed at kind of younger writers who are starting off, 
And um, that's the advantage of that is that, you know, you create a, um, a group that is sort of explicitly like we're, we're people who are, who are sort of un underrepresented and we're practicing and we're writing and stuff like that. The downside of that is that if you write, you know, you, you will end up with some bad pieces doing that. Um, you know, it's just inevitable. And uh, you need to decide whether you're going to exercise quality control, which can defeat the point of the whole exercise, or whether you're going to publish things that maybe aren't quite uh, there, that aren't really quite, you know, as, as good as they should be. And that might make the whole the whole vision of the site sort of diminish. So it's not an easy solution. Um, and I don't know that there is a straightforward solution, but um, I think the, the, probably what I would do if I was 18 or 19 years old and starting off again uh, is what I actually did, which is just set up a blog that nobody read and just write as if people were reading. And then eventually, um, you know, I, I found my way writing for other places where, where people did read. And um, the, the experience and practice that I had from having blog it blogged when I was a teenager, um, you know, helped a lot and I think ended up with uh, me being able to kind of hit the ground running when I had a bigger audience. Okay, I think that's great. I think that that's great advice. I basically add to that that it's oh, it's very rare to have uh, both Twitter and Substack at the same time across human history. So now that you have the chance to one say uh, what to to say whatever comes into your mind without thinking you post that on Twitter. And for the more reasonable thoughts, you can put those on Substack. It's pretty there to have both of those. Um, yeah, I, be, I, I, use, I mean, I use Twitter as a sort of um, proving ground for Substack. You know, I often do kind of quick threads on Twitter and then later on, I think, oh, you know, that was quite a, that was quite a good thread. So I then will write a, a longer piece based on what I, my kind of flash thoughts on Twitter. And um, that can be a good kind of supply chain. But I, I totally agree with you, by the way, that Twitter should be a place for quick thoughts. And I and I really would advise against people um, being a little being too kind of concerned about what they post on Twitter and being too um, conservative about what they. And I know that most people would advise the opposite. But to me, provided what you're saying isn't kind of massively, um, you know, isn't the sort of thing that might haunt you in the years to come because you said something really egregious or really insulting to people. Um, I think it's okay to be wrong. I think it's okay to be a bit silly on Twitter. And um, you know, it's it's part of the kind of human conversational process. And and as long as you're you're happy to be wrong and you're happy for people to point out when you're wrong, then um it's 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 a more enjoyable medium to use when you're a bit more spontaneous with it. Speaking of people being wrong on Twitter, a lot of people who would describe themselves as um liking freedom or liberty in the economic sphere were very, very wrong on COVID-19 all through February 2020 and many of them even till now. You would describe yourself maybe in that or adjacent to the same field. What did those people get wrong that you got right? What was the uh, thought process that one should seek to avoid making those egregious errors? Well, um, I'm sure I'm going to annoy people just by accepting the premise of your question that they got it wrong and I got it right. But um, I think the, I think the, um, one of the, <clears throat> I guess there are two different reasons that we may have disagreed about COVID. Um, one was a sort of factual disagreement about how bad COVID was um, and, and, you know, whether COVID would in fact kill a few thousand people or whether it was a sort of fairly mild illness that, you know, really just a, like we're getting upset about the flu. Uh, which I think is kind of clearly wrong and clearly um, and, and, and why people thought that 
I think was a combination of sort of arrogance. Some people kind of thought they could um, predict uh, based on pretty much nothing um, how bad COVID would be. And also of sort of extreme skepticism of authority information sources. And, you know, I think if you are particularly if you're on the right and this and this incidentally, I think um, helps us understand anti-vaxxers as well. If you are on the right, then I think you are used to being um, regarding authority information as really suspect and regarding information that you get as being kind of fundamentally um, very, very dodgy. Uh, because, you know, you think it's often propagandistic and you think it's often driven by political concerns rather than by the, the desire to promote truth. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. You know, I, I, there are many times when I read uh, the Financial Times and I kind of roll my eyes slightly at the way a story is being framed or I read the New York Times and I, and I note that important parts of the story are being left out for what I consider to be political reasons. So I understand that. But I think that um, some people took that kind of instinct way too far. The second reason that we might disagree is because it's a values judgment. You know, it's a values-based decision about um, how much are we willing to sacrifice personally in order to protect people who are not us, but who are, you know, older people or, or people with immune problems uh, from this, this really terrible disease. And to me, it was a fairly straightforward no-brainer at the beginning. Um, because I thought that there was an end goal and I thought that there was a sort of an end point where vaccines would come and vaccines would would change and, and mean that we wouldn't have to do that kind of lockdown anymore. Um, for some people, they didn't believe that vaccines would come as quickly as they did and um, kind of thought that, you know, we're never going to get out of this sort of lockdown situation. Um, and for other people, they just thought it's not worth it, full stop. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the UK, for example, dying is a very sad price worth paying for everybody else to be able to live their lives somewhat normally. Um, and, and ultimately, I just disagree with the final point. I just, I think that, first of all, almost all people in the UK did actually want to um, do things like lockdowns, because almost all people in the UK, regardless of their age, cared about their older relatives and cared about their parents and their grandparents not dying of COVID. Um, and ultimately, <clears throat> I, I think that while the costs of lockdown were very significant for a lot of people, um, the costs of not locking down would have been absolutely enormous and not just in terms of dead people, but also in terms of very serious illness, very, in terms of the health system falling over, <clears throat> in terms of just the disruption that would come from a really, really bad illness sweeping through the country and infecting everybody uh, at the same time. And so, you know, when it comes to that kind of thing, I can't really say that people are wrong because they, they, they share, they just have different values to me. But to me, um, the, the utility that was lost from uh, and the freedom that was lost from locking down was very small compared to the utility and freedom that would have been lost from letting the virus kill hundreds of thousands of people and infect tens of millions of people all in one go. I, I, I also feel that many times an instinctive reaction against any government action was the uh, biggest problem there because, you know, it's, it's, we tend to use these heuristics saying that, okay, here government good, government bad. And as we spend more time discussing these issues, we jump directly towards the heuristics as rules in, uh, instead of actual, um, you know, uh, thinking. You... Uh, well, history major in college, your website at the Adam Smith um, 
institutes indicate that he had one degree in economics and one in history. What do you think uh, history has to teach uh, economists and people in public policy on policymaking? I think the um, best lesson comes from a book, uh, is encapsulated by a book called Seeing Like a State, um, which is by a guy called James C. Scott, and is, is called, I think the subtitle is, How Various Attempts to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed. Um, and, the, and the kind of lesson is that um, it's very, very difficult in practice to impose um, schemes that make people's lives better, uh, that, 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 aren't, that don't reflect the complexity of real life. Um, so, you know, we, we, you look at um, many times in history where states have very altruistically and benevolently perhaps tried to, um, you know, create order and create, and, and create more efficiency where disorder and chaos exist um, and discovered that that chaos or what looks like chaos from the outside actually has, has good reasons for it in, the, in terms of the people actually doing it. And so I think, you know, it comes to, down to a sort of point about humility about the power of, um, of, of anybody, but particularly elites and particularly kind of scientific and economic elites to um, improve people's lives against their will. Um, and so, you know, the lesson I think from history is very, very smart people are often very, very wrong. And uh, even when you get groups of experts who all agree with each other on certain things, they can still be wrong. And, and there can be reasons. They can be all unaware of some particular important fact. Uh, they can all be shaped by some kind of bias that, that kind of collectively affects all of them. Um, or they could be, you know, maybe less often sort of motivated by some unpleasant uh, selfish gain um, rather than altruism. But those lessons are that <clears throat> we should be very, very, very skeptical of um, any kind of elite expert attempt to kind of reshape things, even when those things seem chaotic and disorderly. Um, and instead, I think the lesson is where improvement does come, it tends to come from um, incremental improvements and incremental um, sort of individuals making their lives better. And that's not to say that we should be from a public policy point of view, um, you know, we shouldn't do anything, but we should try to harness the power of sort of individual incremental problem solving. And we should try to use that sort of bottom up type approach to, to social problem solving and redesign institutions so that they can allow that kind of bottom up approach to problem solving more than trying to impose sort of grand schemes from above. Um, inevitably anything, you know, even street votes is in some way a kind of grand scheme. But what I hope is that things like street votes are about um, allowing sort of individual bargaining to take place between people and individual problem solving to take place more than takes place right now. So it's a kind of question of centralization versus decentralization in terms of problem solving and decision making. Your, your outlook seems to me to, to me um, fundamentally Coasian in the, in the, with the works of Donald Coase and its nature. Who do you think was the most underrated economist of the last hundred years? Besides Ronald Coase, uh, because that seemed like the obvious answer here. Well, you're right. I love Ronald Coase. Um, well, one of the economists that I really admire is um, Michael Polanyi, um, who is Carl Polanyi's brother. Carl Polanyi is quite well known and a, a very, very um, well-regarded figure, especially on the left. Um, he, he actually, a slight, a slight tangent, Carl Polanyi is in some ways the kind of Hayek of the left. 
in that um, Hayek provides a kind of theory, an underlying theory that that you will often find, uh, you know, even a kind of Closian approach often involves a sort of Hayekian analysis of understanding of information. And, and, and a lot of what I just said reflects Hayek. Um, Polanyi on the left does something similar. Polanyi's point is that markets are, or Polanyi's argument is that markets um, are human and, and central, centrally created creations uh, because private property is a centrally created creation and private property is only, uh, can only exist, he argues, with um, central and, and violent enforcement. And, and the kind of consequence of that is that there is no real reason that we shouldn't redesign markets to, um, to look in, in this way rather than in that way. Um, and so there's a sort of naturalistic fallacy, he argues, among uh, people who are kind of free market and so on, that, um, that, that, that is mistaken. Um, Michael Polanyi is his brother. And Michael Polanyi is um, especially interesting from his work on science, I think. Um, he argues that, <clears throat> and I think this, this is quite a philo philosophical um, approach and philosophically interesting approach, but argues that institutions like science exist because of mutually reinforcing uh, checks that uh, have to do with reputation and um, you know peer review we often talk about as if it's a sort of gold standard and as if oh well if something's peer reviewed then you know clearly it's true and if something's not peer reviewed then it's not true and I think Michael Polanyi's response to that would be to say well actually peer review is deeply flawed um, it's, it's better than nothing and it's and it's a good mechanism but it's it's more of a kind of an evolutionary process where we're trying to sift out bad ideas and we sometimes fail to do that and sometimes we promote bad ideas through this kind of process but this sort of overlapping um this overlapping set of incentives that each scientist has to promote their own ideas and to catch out the bad ideas of their colleagues for because they look good if they do that gives us over time a sort of progress and gives us over time scientific advancement um and so I, I think that's a really interesting insight uh, the paper i'm thinking of in particular is the republic of science um, by Michael Polanyi, and I'd, I'd really recommend it if people are interested. Um, but I think he's probably the most underrated. But I totally agree that my view is extremely Kosian, and and the idea that um, that problems don't need to be solved from the center, you know. And, and libertarians, I think, as much as I love many libertarians, make this mistake themselves, and they they try to define, you know, what what is unjust and what is just. You know, they and they typically say, you know, coercion is unjust and non-coercion is just, and, and and you can you can kind of do whatever you want provided you're not coercing other people. And Coase, I think, takes a much more um, nuanced view and recognizes that you know coercion is a sort of very very empty or very very uh, either very excessively narrow or excessively broad term and doesn't capture a huge amount of the dealings that we have with each other. And instead, what we want is to set up institutions that allow people to. Um, deal to, to make deals with each other according to what they consider to be bad and according to what they consider to be good. And we don't need to we don't need to determine in advance what is good and what's bad. We just need to let individuals transact with each other and and deal with each other in order to um, to kind of meet each other halfway on on things that are good and things that are bad. Um, and and I think that's a really really powerful way of looking at the world um, and gives us a lot of useful policy insight as well. You know, it's not just an abstract point. It tells us a lot about how we should think about solving problems. Um, and, you know, part of what I try to do is to apply that kind of way of looking at the world to really important questions. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is one of the most fun episodes I've, I've had because you 
take things two levels be, uh, deep into it and then maybe we'll stop at the first level and your advisor of, um, be more open on twitter is uh, the only ad advisor i'm taking 26 of the 26 of, of the rest of the of the uh, yes i i've i've had have said you know be careful but i'm going to ignore all of those and, and listen to you <laughs> uh, i think i think that's i think that's right I, one thing i always i always note is that I remember the embarrassing things that I've said much more than I remember the embarrassing things that other people have said. <laughs> and um, you know, because we're all the star of our own of our own movies. And um, so, you know, I think we already have really big built in checks on being too embarrassing. And actually, the challenge is to sometimes forget about those checks and sometimes not worry too much about those inhibitions and to kind of put ourselves out there a little bit. Um, so that's so yeah. I think I think just in general, um, not being afraid to be to be a bit silly, not being afraid to be wrong, um, allows you to be a lot more um, free and a lot more kind of creative and productive on a medium like Twitter. Yeah, uh, thanks for coming on the show. I've enjoyed talking to you, and uh, you're my twenty seven guest. Once I get to hundred and twenty seven, I'm gonna call you back and say you know. Uh, let's we can revisit this how many ever months or years later that is great i look forward to it thanks for having me thank you